You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. My name is Kirsten, and I will be reading from Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Kirsten. You guys can grab your seats. I'm going to pray as we get to dig into this. We're continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel called The Upside Down Kingdom. We've just been looking at all the many faceted ways that uh, the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth is upside down from our ways and yet is the way that things ought to be. So let's pray as we get ready to receive this. God, uh, we come before you as always. We come before you as your creatures in need, needy of a relationship with you, needy uh, to trust in you, needy to hear from you. And we pray that as you've given these words through Matthew, uh, these words of Jesus to us, would you help us to not only accept them, receive them, but God, we want to be transformed by them. Would you help us to be transformed by Jesus' words here today? And we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, A regular part of life as a human being is living in denial of reality. Amen. (laughs) All of us do it uh, from time to time. Sometimes our denial is so deep that we don't even realize we're doing it. Sometimes the evidence is right in front of us, and yet we consciously and deliberately avoid the truth. And I think perhaps the funniest illustration of this is found in Monty Python's parrot sketch. Anybody ever seen this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to make your day here. For the, I, I saw like two hands raised. So... We're going to just check this out for just a moment, okay? Just, I, I actually cut this up because it's a little long. This is just a, little, a couple little clips. So your assignment this week is to go find this. It's really hard to find on the internet, but you can find it and watch the whole thing because it's going to make your day. Okay, you get the feel. <laughs> you got to love that. I mean, the guy's saying that it's pining, and, and he actually, in another part of it, he's like, it's pining for the fjords. 
because it's a Norwegian blue. Of course, we know that there's a lot of tropical areas in Norway, right? And there's, there's such a thing as a Norwegian blue parrot. Okay, why am I showing you that? Because all the signs point to the fact that this parrot is dead, that, that Polly was not going to wake up, and yet here this shop owner clearly does not want to acknowledge the truth. There's something that he is protecting. And yet this argument between the guy who bought it and the shop owner, this could go on forever because while an, a lack of evidence is one thing, at some point people simply like to reject the truth. Amen? Amen. And that's what Jesus is dealing with in our text for today. People rejecting the truth. The religious elite, the, uh, the Pharisees, are so hard-hearted that they cannot accept the truth even when it's right in front of their faces. They come to Jesus, and here they are, they're seeking a sign immediately after he has just performed one. He's just healed a demon-oppressed man. We heard about that story from Pastor David last week. And there can be no doubt now that he really is the Messiah, and yet uh, they explained away the miracle. They actually said that Jesus was in cahoots with Satan, so the power to cast out this demon came from Satan. They were calling good evil and evil good. And while the truth was so glaringly obvious, their hearts were so hard that they denied it. And in a similar way, God gives us countless signs for our weak or maybe non-existent faith. He gives us countless uh, signs, countless pieces of evidence that we can trust him, and yet our hard hearts suppress this truth. We deny what is right in front of us. And then what do we do? Well, we, we seek a sign, just like the Pharisees did. Some extra proof, you know, that, that God will actually deliver something to us, that some kind of assurance that he's actually worth placing our faith in. But you see, Jesus, God, and, and Jesus, his son, they're not circus bears. Amen? Jesus is not going to get up on a ball and he's not going to wear a tutu and do whatever we want. He's, he's, not our, he's also not our personal chef. We use that analogy as well. He doesn't exist to cater to our every wish. He also doesn't need to prove anything. See, he already has. He already has. That's what this is about. And so the evidence that he gives and the signs that he performs are on his terms, not ours. He does what he wills as the sovereign Lord of the universe. That's what you should expect from him. He does what he wills and then he leaves it to us to do with it what we will. And here in this text today, he highlights three signs that he would give. The first is resurrection, the second is judgment, and the third is wisdom. And all of these point to this ultimate reality that God's greatest sign has already come, and so we should believe. Let's look at these now, these three signs. The first one, a sign of resurrection, said beginning in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus tells the Pharisees here that they are evil and adulterous. Now, we don't have any evidence that they were cheating on their wives. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of adultery. What he meant is that they were not faithful to Yahweh, to Israel's God. This is this reoccurring theme in the Bible that marriage is a reflection of the relationship that God has with his people, that we are united to him. And so when people reject God, when our priorities are all out of whack and we chase after other gods like money and sex and power, we forsake our marriage vows, our marriage vows to God. It's spiritual adultery. And Jesus is saying that this is what these religious leaders have done. In seeking a sign, they're rejecting all the signs that have already been shown to them. The greatest of which, of course, is right in front of them, Jesus himself, God in the flesh. And so Jesus is like, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign, right? In seeking a sign, they're rejecting the signs that have already been given to them. And, and, and we got to remember, Jesus is not a circus bear. He's not going to be manipulated and just told what to do. And so the sign that he tells them about is one that he already had planned. This one was planned before the foundation of the world. And Jesus illustrates it by turning to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Here's what he's referring to. Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God had told Jonah uh, to go and preach repentance to people who were both ethnically and religiously different from him. This pagan city of Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq. And he tells Jonah to go there and to preach this repentance, but Jonah is angry at God because he doesn't want him to save these people. He, he, he doesn't want him to save these people who are his enemies. And so Jonah, what does he do? He runs in the exact opposite direction. He goes to a port town on the coast. And Jonah says to God, you're gracious, God. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You're, you relent from disaster. And so Jonah knew exactly how God would treat the people of Nineveh if they repented. He would forgive them. And so Jonah goes and he, he gets on a boat and sets sail as far away from Nineveh as he can go. For some of you guys who have read the Jesus storybook Bible, you might have read this story. And I love how it says it. It kind of describes Jonah going up to a ticket counter to get his ticket for this boat. And he says, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. <laughs> so Jonah's going anywhere but Nineveh. And the irony is, Rather than pour out his judgment on this city, God pours out his judgment on Jonah. Jonah is swallowed up by some sort of sea monster. We don't really understand what's going on there. It's all miraculous, that's the point. And, in, and then he miraculously spits Jonah out after three days 
and three nights. And Jesus says that all of this is ultimately foreshadowing his own death and resurrection. Now, unlike Jonah, Jesus was innocent, right? But he still accepted the judgment of God on behalf of his enemies, all of us, all of humanity. Jesus bore the sins of the world, and then he died, and then he rose three days later. So just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jesus was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, it's probably worth pulling aside for just a second here and dealing with the math on this one. Some of you guys are going, hang on. Jesus died on a Friday and he rose on a Sunday. That's not three days and three nights, right? And that's true. If if that's what's on your mind, you're right. But we have to know that in Hebrew, there was this idiom and the way that they thought about it and talked about it was that they counted any part of any day or night as all of that day or night. And so Friday, Saturday, and Sunday would be considered three days and three nights. But that's an aside. What's the point? Why is Jesus bringing this up? The point is, is that just as God rescued Jonah from death and it became a sign to the people of Nineveh that Jonah's message was really from God. Jesus' death and resurrection is a sign to the Pharisees who he's talking to, but it's a sign to all of us that his message is really from God, that he is really from God. But even as great of a sign as Jesus' resurrection is, it's undeniable proof really, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world, it still won't convince people who are hard-hearted to this day. And that, that might be you as I'm telling you this story. But we have to remember is God's greatest sign has come. What are we going to do with it? We have to ask ourselves that question. What will I do with it? God's greatest sign has come in Jesus. Are our hearts too hard to receive it? Is my heart too hard to receive it? Jesus gives us another sign. Number two, a sign of judgment. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, the story that Jesus is referencing here is found in Jonah 3. Here's here's what he's pointing us to. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It has to be a second time because Jonah resisted it the first time. And now Jonah's like, well, I guess there's no way around this. I'm going to have to do what God is asking me to do. And God says to him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Just try and wrap your mind around how incredible this city was, how great their accomplishments were. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his sermon, okay? 
Just, just think about that. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What? Okay. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Okay, this city, there are estimates of hundreds of thousands of people were probably present in this city at that time. Everybody repented. Jonah might be the most effective evangelist in the history of the world. I mean, forget about Billy Graham, right? Jonah went into the city of Nineveh. He preached was probably the lamest sermon of all time. And everyone from peasants to the king repented. It's amazing. And what's Jesus' point in talking about this? Why does he make a reference to this story? The reason is because Nineveh was pure evil. Okay? Pure evil. Nineveh was morally corrupt. God said later in the book, he said that they did not know their right hand from their left. In other words, they had no moral compass. It was broken. They were as evil as they could get. And they were ignorant of God's ways, and so they made up their own ways. They, they made up their own morality. I wonder if you've ever lived like that. Have you ever lived like Nineveh, ignorant of God's ways, making up your own version of morality, defining morality on your own terms, I think all of us have at times. And I can't help but see so many similarities between Nineveh and our beloved city, right? So many similarities. And God told Jonah that he had compassion on Nineveh because of their moral ignorance. Think about that for a minute. What that tells me is that if God were to come to Seattle today, he would have compassion on Seattle as well. But not only did the people of Nineveh make their own morality, they were also filled up with pride. And so why did God judge them? Because they were pure evil and they were proud of it. Think about that. That feels a lot like Seattle as well, doesn't it? But here's the thing. They repented. Nineveh repented. And so Jesus uses Nineveh's repentance as a sign of judgment for the people who rejected him. Because though Nineveh was pure evil, he says this generation, the people around him, they were pure evil. Now their corruption may have looked very, very different, but at its root it was exactly the same. Just like Christians today proclaim to be Christians but have rotted hearts, the generation of Jews that Jesus encountered here, as Jesus said in verse 39, were evil and adulterous. Even Nineveh repented after hearing the worst sermon ever, but these people came face to face with God in the flesh and they did not. And so Jesus says, Nineveh will rise up. They will resurrect at the final judgment. And their belief 
And their repentance will condemn the unbelief of those who didn't repent. Because in Jesus, God's greatest sign has come and we have to deal with it. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with the sign? Number three, a sign of wisdom. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's Jesus referring to here? You might have wondered, after hearing the incredible story about Nineveh and their repentance, you might have wondered, is there anybody else in the Bible whose belief is as surprising as the Ninevites' belief was? And the answer is, yeah, there, there are lots of other examples. Jesus gives us just one more right here, and the example he gives us is of the Queen of the South. Who is the Queen of the South? This is coming from uh, 1 Kings 10. If we turn there and go to verse 1, it says, Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. So the Queen of the South is the queen of Sheba. She was the queen of a region which is now in present day Yemen. And she came to investigate whether Solomon's reputation as the wisest person on earth was justified. She comes all the way to Israel to meet this king and see what's going on. What does she find? We're told later on in that same passage in, in 1 Kings 10. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings and that, he, that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Take my breath away. Boom, boom. Boom, boom. So she was just breathless after seeing. She was shocked at what she saw when she came and visited Solomon. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I had heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And get this, she observes all of that and it brings her to faith. Here's what she says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. As she observed the greatness of Solomon, she realized she was really observing the greatness of the Lord. She was really observing the greatness of Israel's God. All Solomon was doing was representing his God. Solomon's wisdom, Solomon's wealth, Solomon's justice, his righteousness, it was all a reflection of what God was like. And you see, no one could imagine anyone greater than Solomon. He was the richest man on earth. Some estimates say that he may be the richest person who has ever lived. 
given, uh, you know, inflation and all that kind of stuff, right? And yet, Jesus says he's greater than Solomon. He's even wiser than Solomon. How can Jesus say that? Well, on one hand, Solomon was a horrifically fallen sinner uh, while Jesus wasn't. Solomon squandered the wisdom and the greatness that God gave to him. Some of you know that story. How did Solomon do that? He did it through his sex addiction. His sex addiction led him away from the Lord. The God of sex led him to the gods of the women that he had sex with. His heart went astray, and it's one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. But even casting all of Solomon's sinfulness aside, Jesus could say that he was greater than Solomon because Jesus is the God who blessed Solomon to begin with. Solomon wouldn't have been able to do any of those things apart from the God who made him and enabled him. If you ever get caught up in the glory of a person here on earth, make sure that you take it to its logical conclusion, that that glory is derivative. Uh, I, I imagine that in their pride, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Warren Buffett, they probably all think that they are self-made men. But who gave them those abilities? Who gave them that economic wisdom? God did. Michael Jordan might be the best NBA player in history, although I've heard people contesting that recently. But who gave him life? Who gave him that talent? Jesus is saying that he did. Jesus is saying he's greater than Solomon because he was the origin of Solomon's greatness. And so the queen of the south, she was able to recognize this. She saw it with her own eyes. She recognized this in Solomon's life, even though she was of a different ethnicity, she worshipped different gods, she was from a different country than Solomon, and she came to faith in Yahweh and gave him praise. And not only is that a testament to God's grace and her response to God's grace, but it also serves as an example, Jesus says, of what will happen on the day of judgment. Her faith, the queen of Sheba's faith, will condemn those who rejected Jesus and the signs that he gave to them. We see yet again, we've seen it throughout Matthew's gospel multiple times, that rejection is judged more harshly than ignorance. And we got to take heed to that warning today, friends. Rejection of Jesus is judged more harshly than ignorance of Jesus. It's exponentially worse. And so how else can we relate this to our lives? We've looked at a few different ways that we can relate it, but... I want to focus as we close our time specifically on how we might seek a sign from Jesus. And to begin with, I should say that there is actually one kind of sign seeking that's actually really good. 
And that's when we seek a sign that Jesus has already promised to provide. Okay? Not treating him like that circus bear, but calling on him to fulfill what he has already promised us. And so things like investigating and trying to arrive at the truth about Jesus is a good kind of sign seeking. It's very different from what the Pharisees were doing in this story. They were not interested in arriving at the truth. They were interested in suppressing it. And so there's nothing wrong with investigating, seeking, trying to arrive at the truth that God has already provided us. You can find it. In fact, I just heard a story last Sunday at Disciple Equip. There was someone who came to faith, at least in part, part of their journey towards faith was researching all the arguments for and against the resurrection based on the historical facts and trying to understand whether this was a real historical event. And there was a time at the end of all of that where, where they believed that the resurrection was real, but they didn't believe the rest of the story of Jesus until God gave them the gift of faith at a later time. But you see, searching out, seeking for the truth is a good kind of sign seeking. The, but, but what you can find at the end of all of that seeking is that the historical proof may not end up really mattering to you that much. It may not, in the end, affect your belief. Because while proof can confirm faith, it cannot produce it. That's what we've seen with the Pharisees, right? The signs themselves confirm that Jesus' claims are trustworthy, but we need a supernatural work of God in our hearts to actually believe. And so if investigating Jesus or investigating the Bible's truth claims isn't the kind of sign-seeking that the Pharisees were doing in the story. What was? And how are we prone to doing the same sort of thing? And the answer is what I looked at at the very beginning of this message, that we seek after a sign when we live in denial of reality. Like that pet shop owner in the Monty Python parrot sketch, okay, just trying to bring that back to mind. We deny what is right in front of us. And when we do, we seek a sign from God as some sort of diversion, some sort of way of avoiding having to acknowledge the truth. I want to give you some examples. I'd like you to consider, are these the, have I ever thought, believed, uh, desired these sorts of things? Anytime that we pray something like, God, if you do blank, then I will blank. It's putting God to the test. God If you really are who you say you are, then fill in the blank. You will do such and such a thing. God, if you're really good, you'll bring me that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that spouse. God, if you're really, really good, you'll make sure that it's not just anyone, but it's that person that I selected on, you know, meharmony.com, right? God, if you really love me, You won't box me in with your will. You'll allow me to do whatever I want. God, if you really care for us, if you really provide for us, if you really are our great provider, you're going to give me this job. God, if 
You're really in control. You'll take blank political party out of office. You guys can fill in your own blank on that. Or blank political leader out of office. Or you'll make sure that this new law does not pass. God, if you're really in control, you're going to do what I think is right in this situation. God, if your moral will is actually right, then you'll make it more appealing to all of us. We'll actually like it. God, if you're really trustworthy, you will end all suffering and injustice. Because if suffering and injustice exists, then God, you are not trustworthy. God, I will believe you if you would just prove it. And friends, all of these things are attitudes of seeking after a sign. And it's what Jesus says is evil and adulterous. Why does he say that? Because he's already proven it. There's nothing left to prove. He's already given us all the signs that we need. That's the point. So why do we, despite all of that, why do we still deny the reality of God's goodness? Why do we still deny the reality of God's love? Why do we still deny his power or his righteousness? And the answer is, We have a hard heart. We are hard-hearted. Hard hearts are so full of pride that they are impenetrable. There is nothing that can break through. We judge God, and so no sign could ever be enough. Some hard hearts are so full of pain that they're impenetrable. This fortress that we build to try and protect ourselves from anything bad happening to us. God's goodness and his love shown through Jesus, it it can't be let in. It's too hard. I wonder if, as I'm describing these things, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you today. If you have a pride-filled heart And if so, what you need to do is you need to invite God to humble you so that you might be receptive to believe the signs that he has already shown to us. If you have a pain-filled heart, you need to ask God to heal you so that you might be receptive to the signs that he has already shown to us in Jesus. And when you do, you will be transformed. You begin to see the, the experiences in your own life from a different vantage point. I was uh, talking to one of our members here this morning. You guys might know Angela. And she was telling me again her story of a time in 2009 where she got into this severe biking accident. And everyone thought she was gone. She had a 90% chance of never coming back, 90% chance of being, tell me if I'm using this term right, brain dead for the rest of her life. And the way she described it to me is that that's what it took in her life for her to be able to have God soften her heart and remind her of his work going through a time where she was in such desperation, 
that she had nothing but him. And looking back on that, reminding her of the reality that God was present with her all along. And he's healed her to the point where she gets to walk in here on her own two feet today, right? And, and the reason why she can see that differently, she's, she actually picked, pulled up a picture of her on her hospital bed, just completely tattered and beat up, tubes coming out of her. She said, this is my sign. The things that sometimes we see as God not working are exactly the things where God chooses to work. And so what we have to remember is God's greatest sign has come to us in Jesus. He is active. Whether he chooses to act in the ways that we want him to or not in our present day, he has proven to us that he is trustworthy. He has proven to us his love through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He has proven to us that we can find hope in him, and so we should believe community group questions for this week as you guys gather together. Are there any signs that you've demanded of God? Major distinction between praying and asking God for something versus demanding God do something in order to prove it, right? Are there any signs you've demanded of God? The goodness and glory of Jesus Christ softens and heals our hard hearts. Is there any way you need him to do that work in you today? Let's pray and then we will respond to God together. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have given us everything that we need to know the truth that you have sent your Son Jesus as our Messiah, as our Savior, as our King, as our God. God, while we may have hearts that get hard and deny the realities of your existence or your presence, God, you are so good that you come to us in compassion and tenderize those hard hearts. And we pray that you would do that today, that we might know you, we might love you, and we might believe in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.